Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. Today, we are delighted to feature Marco Tiesmaki on the show. Marco is the China Country Director for Business Finland and has a wealth of business experience, including China leadership roles at Nokia and Airbus. Business Finland is a governmental entity operating within the Finnish Ministry of Employment and Economy. Founded on January 1, 2018, its primary objectives include promoting trade, tourism, and foreign investments in Finland. Additionally, Business Finland offers financial support for innovation initiatives. In our conversation with Marco, we gained valuable insights into his experiences working in China in the 1990s and his current role promoting Finnish businesses in China. Marco shares his insights on the growth of mobile technology, changes in China over the past few decades, and the potential for Finnish companies to enter the Chinese market in areas such as carbon reduction and energy transition. We explore the importance of personal connections and community, whether it's building relationships with Chinese partners or bonding over a shared love of hockey. We also touch on the challenges of doing business in China, such as the increasing dominance of local competition, the importance of adapting to changes in the industry, and much, much more. Enjoy. We believe that the consumer pattern, the consumption patterns in China are changing relatively fast. And I think we saw that during the COVID time, especially that there's a huge and increasing population of Chinese consumers who are basically appreciating exactly the same values and, and making their purchase decisions following similar values that you would see in any global Western country. Sustainability, looking for something more individual, durable than, than just, you know, major brands that health aspects of nutrition, for instance, food products, uh, cosmetics uh, are very important. And that's traditionally things that Finland is strong at. So we see great opportunities bringing Finnish consumers, consumer brands into China. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Marco, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Todd. Great to be here. So where in the world are you that we're recording you from today? I'm actually sitting here in the middle of Beijing CBD in our office. It's a Dragon Boat Festival. It's pretty quiet here. The locals are on holiday and I'm enjoying this quiet chat with you this morning. Well, let's kick things off and have you maybe tell us a story about your work with Nokia in the 1990s. Obviously, super, super famous, one of the most well-known brands in the world. How did you start there? How did you end up moving to China? And what was your role like with Nokia in that area of the world? Well, Nokia was really the first job I joined since I graduated from the university. And one of the reasons I joined Nokia was that I saw it as an opportunity to bring take me to international arena. So I, I indeed joined 1990. Uh, and pretty much after I joined, I moved to Germany for the first three years, being one of the first account managers that Nokia introduced at that time. Uh, and you know, really at that time, the GSM and the mobile telecommunication business was starting really this global boom that we've been witnessing for the past 30 years or so. So 
it was pretty pioneering things, uh, new markets, uh, small Finnish companies starting to break into first European markets, eventually globally. So it was really fantastic and, and you know, in many ways exciting. Uh, after three years being in Germany, you know, the things started to move around here in China. And China obviously was the market that was well known by that time already. That had huge potential, but really not that developed. So the same things we saw in, you know, in Europe in terms of uh, bringing, uh, you know, new, new licenses, liberating the telecommunication seemed to be something that is going to happen in China. So obviously then we needed to pull really all the resources we could into this market expecting this huge growth. And I was one of the first coming here on, on that one. And, and we were a small team of, uh, you know, 30 odd people in the old uh, cinema theater in Beijing trying to set up the negotiation connections and all you got there. So it was it was really, I don't know, it was really, really exciting times. I always remember that as as you know, something you really don't forget, something you only have a chance to experience probably once in your lifetime. There's a couple of unique perspectives that you have that uh, I do kind of want to ask about. Uh, tell me first, though, what, what year was it that you actually came to China? That was 1994, end of 1994. Not a lot of people have that 90s experience. There's a lot more that came in the 2000s, including myself. And then there has been a ton since kind of 2010 on. But I'd like to kind of dive into that unique perspective around, as you as you said, mobile. Right. And and I mean, there's no more fun place to talk about the growth of mobile and what it what it did for technology, what it did for human connections, what it did for economies. I mean, and China is that place. It, you know, as we know, when smartphones came out, it it put a billion people in one country on the internet. What a fantastic thing. So let's start by going back late 90s, you know, mid to late 90s, early 2000s. What was going on in the mobile phone space? What was going on in the telecoms market? And I'll leave it open-ended like that. Well, I guess first point to make is that really before this all uh, mobile connected internet became it, it was really about introducing roaming in, in the voice connections so it was it was kind of a big big change had it started to happen in the early 90s towards the mid of 90s where basically you didn't call a, a device in a room you started to actually call people uh, and above all the, the people where you, you could call them no matter where they are and it became international so we had you know two standards were driving this really the european gsm and the one uh, cdm coming from north america and China chose CD, uh, sorry, GSM. So uh, obviously that voice-driven mobility was the first boom that came starting in the mid of 90s. And yeah, like you said, indeed, after a couple of years, the GSM networks were built up, the networks, uh, the markets were shared. China was, uh, at that time, didn't have, uh, you know, uh, home, homemade technology. So it was really reliant on, on the global suppliers. And at, at that point in time, you know, we had plenty of them. Nokia, Nokia was one of them. And we were kind of a newcomer because the established uh, companies uh, had been doing a more global business long like the, our dear, dear neighbors from the Sweden, the Ericsson's, you had, you know, Nortel, you had uh, Lucent, uh, AT&T first, Lucent later, you had Siemens. So it, it, there was a whole, whole host of companies and we came as a challenger uh, and eventually uh, came up with a very decent technology win market share. So it was, it was really kind of like conquering markets and you could see that how the company grew and, and all that. 
So, um, so yeah, that was that was the, the beginning. And then when you go towards the end of the 90s, obviously it became this this whole IP internet thing because started to uh, you know grow grow hugely globally. But that was based on on the, uh, on the context of, of using computers, right? So uh, we were like Nokia was among the first one introducing the idea of, of uh, you know bringing this connectivity to the devices. We call it. IP in your pocket, which was a bit of a joke, IP in your pocket, but that was that was something that, that we were launching, you know, the early 2000s, late, uh, late 90s. Uh, and that, that of course, created a huge, huge expectation on the next growth uh, towards the end of the 90s. However, uh, when it turned to the next millennium, uh, we, some of the, your listeners might remember that, you know, that was the time we actually also experienced the first bust. So after 10 years of constant growth, the IP bubble burst, and, and among that also the expectations of how quickly really this, this, this mobile or internet connectivity can be uh, embedded into the, the mobile devices. And that was probably in this industry the first sign when you realize that, you know, uh, you have a vision, you get it right, and Nokia got it, I would say, pretty much right every time in terms of what's going to happen. But you greatly underestimate the, 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 you know, what is required for the whole ecosystem and, and, and things to, to work together. And, and really, so what when when the uh, I would say the third generation, as was called, the, the, the generation was supposed to introduce the internet in your pocket, as we said, uh, it, it really only happened in uh, in the next generation, fourth generation. Uh, and what was driving that really was that the uh, I hate to say as an ex, ex Nokia employee, but it was really the Apple. Uh, Apple uh, devices that was was really giving the end user experience that was driving the growth. So yeah, I mean it was it was uh, it was kind of '90s was to, like I said constant growth, but then we also hit the bubble. And and I remember being a, a you know relatively young still at that age and only experienced growth. It was also personally a kind of like shock that how how can this this growth that was supposed to be forever there suddenly did, didn't exist. So so yeah, it was. Uh, it was interesting. What was it like living in China during those times? I mean, compared to now, because I don't think there's anywhere in the world, and I say this probably quite naively, but I don't know anywhere that has changed so drastically or so much in in all facets, whether it's transportation or logistics or technology or connectivity or what have you, then especially in China, you know, so from, from, you know, even just the last 30 years, you know, you were thinking 94 to 23, just tell us about, I mean, you've been there, you've witnessed it. What's that been like? Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more, Todd. I mean, it's a, it's, it's amazing. I still keep on sometimes wondering how, how did this all happen? What made this possible? And we're probably not going to go into that, uh, what made it possible, but you know, when, when we came here, you know, mid, mid nineties, it, it was a, a, a place that it's very difficult to describe. Uh, you know, you had dark streets, hardly any lights, infrastructure what ne- not, what not, was not existing. You couldn't purchase groceries and, and things that you used to uh, consume in Europe or, or outside of China. Uh, you know, the connections were terrible, roads were not there. I, I remember landing, landing for the first time in, in uh, Shanghai Hongjiao Airport and took a taxi from there, actually driver picked me up to the hotel and for the first, like, I don't know, five, eight kilometers, it's only darkness. It's nothing. And I started to suddenly see that there's a lighthouse somewhere over there. And, and suddenly, you know, the, you know, the, the residential area started to come up. And well, it was, it was, it was, it was really, really sort of uh, difficult to describe. 
uh, bicycles everywhere, you know, people wearing very similar type of clothing. You didn't see much color on the streets. And when you walked in Shanghai streets at that time, uh, you know, went to certain areas, people were really looking at you like, like never seen a Caucasian before. And that wasn't unusual. That was nearly day. So if, you, if I took that, you know, a starting point comparing to where China is now, which is, you know, like I said, pretty much by any measure, it's a very livable international, uh, has international million, million cities and, and, and all the offerings you can imagine. It's just unbelievable. Um, so, um, and I, I think it went through a couple of phases. The, 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 the 90s was really very successful for China because it really started to build the, the basic infrastructure. And you could see it everywhere. We lived in Shanghai, you know, you just walked a block and there was another construction. The road started to be built up. The high-speed high, high speed, uh, rail projects started to get, and it only accelerated actually throughout all the way up till, up till today. And, and the result is what it is. So, so uh, I don't know. It's... Um, it's um, it's still mind-boggling thought. Yeah, I know. Even in 2007, when I arrived, I remember I because my bank card when I first got there was uh, Interac. That was the mm. big kind of a uh, uh, brand, and I had to hunt around the city. You know, Dalian, six million people. Um, I think it was uh, CCB, the China Construction Bank that actually had Interact as, uh, I, you know, it may have had union pay, a couple other things. But, uh, you know, I, it took me a long time to go even find the, a bank machine that was international that could fit and I could actually get money from. And, you know, I've said this before on the podcast, when I landed, I the first thing I thought was, man, I need to get in the crane business because mm-hmm. that is all I can see everywhere I go, uh, that or the elevator business. Okay, so... Let's talk a little bit more about mobile and telecom, because as we know, in you know, and it's always in the news, too. It's highly regulated industry, you know, around the world. Here comes Nokia, foreign brand, maybe foreign technology, like you said. What was it? CDM versus GSM or? CDMA. Yeah. CDMA versus GSM. That was the technology battle. Yeah. So um, I'm just curious about navigating the regulation um what sort of challenges did nokia face as a finnish company that was bringing mobile infrastructure into china at that time i don't think the regulation was not really um a negative issue because it actually opened up the market the regulations more for the operators who are actually building and operating in the networks and that that's still very strictly limited in china uh, remains to be the case, but at that time it, it actually introduced new players and it actually opened up uh, competition in that front for you know the fine, for Chinese operators. There was a new guy on the block called Unicom, China Unicom, and uh, it was expected that it will create a similar kind of growth in China that we've seen the private mobile operators creating in Europe and and in the US for that matter too, or Northern America. Um, so it was it was more of an opportunity for us. Uh, the difference uh, at that time, if you compare it today, was that China didn't have a domestic supplier, so they anyway were reliant on on foreign technology for the couple of generations to come. And uh, I would say that probably Nokia, as a newcomer, and and uh, Finland as a country, was perceived and still is perceived relatively neutral and in a positive way in China. So. So I would say that it wasn't easy, obviously, but uh, but we were uh, given an opportunity and, and Nokia capitalized on that. You eventually left China and I mean, you 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 left Nokia, you left China. Can you first give us those dates of when you left? Because later you actually came back to China uh, and you came back to Nokia. So can you just timeline that for me? 
Sure, sure. Um, we left Asia. Um, we left, last we base was in Hong Kong in 2004. And one of the reasons we, we left Hong Kong was that we decided to move back to Finland for family reasons. We had three kids at that time, started to be at the age we needed to make decisions. Do we need, want them to come what? And, and we felt very strongly about uh, you know, growing, growing them up to become uh, appreciating what we had in Finland. And, and we moved back to Finland. Um, and at that time, a couple of years later, so I still continued working uh, for Nokia in Finland for, for a couple of years. But when the, the Siemens merger came, the famous Nokia Siemens merger, then what happened, uh, as so many times happens, I didn't find uh, you know, a really exciting position at Nokia. So I started to look around. And to my even own surprise, one of the uh, small, medium, uh, family-owned company uh, selected me as, as their CEO. So I basically jumped from the global uh, multi-conglomerate in, into a SME uh, and took the CEO position, which probably I would say was one of probably one of my best decisions ever because that offered me a totally new perspective and growth. And was, what was of course even more important is that this company was, uh, despite of the relatively small size of 40, 40 uh, million euro annual turnover company, it was it was globally very very engaging and active and, and China was one of the, the markets the company already had a position uh, and what we did over those uh, couple of years that I was helming the, the company we, we expanded in China quite quite substantially not, not you know only building new uh, customers but also bringing R&D uh, increasing the sourcing and, and uh, developing uh, assembly functions here in China so I, I had an opportunity to look at the China and think about China from a totally different perspective for those couple of years I was I was uh, doing these jobs, um, but then uh, eventually uh, there were a couple of other companies in between. Uh, but after seven years, I've been doing SMEs. Uh, Nokia called me, uh, an old friend of mine called me, and and you know, Marco, what do you think? Uh, would you be interested if if uh, you'd be given a position in China, you'd come back to China? Uh, well, I wasn't very long discussion with my wife and, and also the, the, the two kids we took with us uh, were very, very excited about the opportunity. We said, well, what the heck? I mean, if you don't do this now, this kind of opportunity will not come again. So we decided to jump the, jump the bang back and, and come back. Well, I imagine that you bent back eyes wide open, right? You, you'd already been there. You were probably very well armed with an understanding of where you wanted to be and how you wanted to be. And so you were probably able to better design your re-entry into China, having been there before. However, as we know, China changes very quickly. And even a couple of years or a decade can make a huge difference. So I'm curious from your perspective, what changed in China that you remember being even still, wow, this is so different than it used to be. What changed in the mobile phone industry? What changed in the telecom market when you returned to Nokia in China in 2015? Yeah, that's uh, that's very true, Todd. I mean, 2015, uh, and that was the time Nokia was uh, executing already the acquisition of Alcatel Lucent. So it was yet another big change in the industry and, and that was very applicable here in China because Alcatel Lucent was still one of the established uh, relatively large suppliers and, and they were operating in many of these provinces that Nokia was not particularly strong. So it was actually very exciting and we came into the time where we see that our market share position in the market uh, will, will be improving a lot. Uh, but we also knew uh, from the previous uh, mergers that it's not easy to maintain your position in China. Typically when these type of mergers happen here, they open the door to the competition and in particular local competition. 
And also at that time it, it, it became crystal clear to me, although of course I had an idea about it, but being in Nokia and looking at it from the inside of Nokia, how strong the local competition has, has become. So the Huawei's and, and the ZTEs were really kind of uh, becoming more and more dominant, more and more and more, more and more sort of well-positioned uh, uh, in key provinces and areas. So it, it was from the day one, it was a, it was a like you could call it an uphill battle. Uh, but we did first relatively well, so it, it was okay. We maintained to keep a good market share uh, and, and maintain the position. But the more and more the time passed, and when I left eventually Nokia, ever since what has happened here is that due to the you know the geopolitics and the, what has happened over the past couple of years, it has become much more tougher for foreign players to be in, uh, and and that's simply the fact a fact of today. Some of the keys to being successful in China is the ability to constantly iterate and pivot and take risks and continue to evolve. When you went back and joined, rejoined Nokia, what had changed from a business operations and strategy position or point of view within the company between those two times that you were with them? I mean, obviously, uh, ever since the first uh, merger that Nokia decided to do on the infrastructure side with the, with the Siemens and the following ones that happened, uh, Motorola, etc., etc., naturally they they are shaping the company. So a lot of things have changed. But to my, uh, I would say, personal um, uh, appreciation, and, and I was very pleased to see that uh, there was a very integral appreciation about the Finnish roots that the company has especially visible here in China. That was a very positive, uh, positive uh, uh, experience and, and revelation to me. Uh, obviously, the big thing that happened on the company level was that the devices that Nokia was so famous of, the mobile phones, the Nokia mobile phones, they actually were just spun off a couple of years before I joined or rejoined. So that the company has changed from basically being mostly recognized from its uh, mobile devices and infrastructure company. And of course, that, that was a huge change. But uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, when, when you go through uh, so many new changes, uh, it's basically, I would say afterwards thinking it's a small miracle that Nokia is so strong as it is today globally. And it has gone through a total kind of reshape of its business focus strategy and, 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 uh, and, and approach, I suppose. So uh, in many ways, uh, especially now that we are looking at, uh, you know, the, the uh, challenges we are facing in terms of, uh, you know, climate change and, and all this green transition, digitalization is going across everything and it's required for this to happen. And, and in, in that sense, very, very pleased to see that Nokia is extremely well positioned to, to continue supporting that and taking, um, you know, the next growth, uh, growth path from there. So, you know struggling years, couple of struggling years, but eventually a pretty good uh, outcome. Do you ever remember a time or maybe a particular phase of the company where not only was Nokia adapting to China per se, but that all that time, because Nokia's had quite the tenure in China, more than most companies can, can claim. Has the existence and time spent in China had any reverse ripple effect back up through the company? Have you taken cues and understandings from business in China and has it come back and has it actually changed Nokia from within saying that maybe we've learned a lot, maybe this could be applied and we can take 
from what we've been doing in China or what China has taught us and actually change some of how we operate or build a process. And then that has actually gone outward into other areas of the world. Yeah. Where Nokia operates. Yeah. I mean, probably I wouldn't go that far saying it was what we learned from China, but obviously Nokia uh, investments into in terms of what, we, what Nokia was doing in China uh, was very significant in the area, several areas of research and development. So the, a lot of the talents that were working for Nokia in China actually greatly contributed to our global success. So sure, uh, operations in China uh, continue to be a significant part of, of Nokia to what I understand. But at that time, when I was still on board with the company, uh, we, we certainly enjoyed a lot of the work that we uh, did in China in the area of R&D. But to say that we took learnings from China per se and, and, uh, and took them out, that would be a bit... Uh, that, that I wouldn't recognize. I just, you know, I felt like that was something that might occur. I wouldn't say it was something necessarily going to happen for sure. But I've always wondered, could you take what China does or how China does things and actually use that to go and replicate how you do things in other areas of the world? I know that we always needed to adapt to chi- to China and I know that China would often take what was done in other areas of the world and then localize it for China. But did you ever see any examples of taking what China does and then localizing that to other areas where you operated? Um, for sure, Todd. I mean, uh, the uh, he- previous head of uh, European Chamber of Commerce, a uh, uh, gentleman called Gerd Putke, used to say that China is the fitness center for businesses. <laughs> Uh, and and I I, th- I kind of tend to agree with him because uh, and I, I used to think that you know if you can survive China if you can do business in China you can do it anywhere. A lot of the things how a business is done in China, not only talking about the competition but the the way that you know the so famous China speed. If you could replicate or implement any of that in any part of your operations globally or elsewhere, I'm sure it would greatly benefit uh, the operations and, and 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 companies businesses. To me, that is that is no brainer. It's much more much more difficult to do it. It's easy to say, but it's difficult to do. But that's definitely something that uh, you know the rest of the world could could learn from China. That's a good point. It really tests your metal. It is it is kind of uh, the CrossFit uh, for 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 companies uh, to go there. That's your high high intensity interval training for company. It really will you know that's the measure of your of your your company, your business fitness uh, right there, operationally, procedurally, financially, everything. And uh, if you're fit enough to do well in China, I think there's a pretty good chance you're fit enough to do well in, in other areas of the world. So that's a really good line. I like that. I might I might steal that and use that later in other episodes. We'll, we'll see. I wanted to just ask a broad question. And it's funny because I want to say, hey, over the entire tenure of your time in China, open-ended question. What were some of the biggest changes that you've seen? However, I also, through my own experience, know that, well, which time? I mean, China has evolved not once or continuously, but multiple times. So I just want to preface, I still want to ask you the question of what have you seen and what are the biggest changes you've seen overall in, in your time there operating, working, living, raising kids, all that stuff, you know, in China. But I just wanted to kind of preclude that question, knowing that there has been multiple, multiple uh, iterations and changes and evolutions along the way. That's a big one, Todd. Um, uh, I mean, it's 
it's a difficult one because China is constantly changing, as you said. And you, we've been here now for eight years, you know, living here day by day. So you, you don't observe the change because it's evolution all the time, but it's still there. Uh, but if you really think about, you know, the th- last 30 years, uh, you know, the first obvious change started to happen when we moved in mid-90s. And, and that was really China decided or took concrete actions to bring in the foreign investments and, and started to build its, its infrastructure, its, its own uh, technologies, its capabilities and, and you know, open up uh, uh, the markets. And that was, you know, the main driver that, that you know, uh, started the first huge change, China changing from dark, uh, you know, muddy, muddy place even into something that we, we see today. And, and it was it was uh, horrendous. Uh, construction and, and development everywhere, basically. Um, and then the, I guess the second change that led, uh, I was kind of logical change was that China also, uh, uh, you know, joined the WTO, the World Trade Organization, and that obviously opened up the market uh, much more to the foreigners. And China was, you know, deregulating uh, the uh, areas and, and offering more uh, space for foreign companies to enter. And that's what you saw, you know, starting, you know, mid uh, mid 2000 uh, to sort of uh, the first decade of 2000 so all the way until i would say 2015 that was a huge basic i don't know liberal time or or whatever you want to call it but basically companies were enjoying they they were given business opportunities china was embracing private companies to come and they did uh, which which great successes um, and at that time you know it was just about you know nobody ask about whether we should go to China or not. It was just that you have to go there as soon as possible. And then I suppose the last big change is, is the recent, uh, you know, five, six, seven years really when, when China decided to change the course again and, and, and become it a bit more sort of uh, considerate and, and you could even word, use the word controllable about what uh, are allowed to do here without strong involvement of the party, etc. And, and whatnot. So, uh, so I guess... You can have a really, really big scheme of things. These are the three big phases I'm thinking about when, when you know, answering your, trying to answer your question. I know. And I appreciate that effort because it was a big, broad question that how many times they've, they've turned over so many things so many times that, you know, it's a difficult question to answer. So thank you for that. After Nokia, you transitioned to Airbus. Um, I don't want to dig or pry too much, but I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about your role there and your time there? Well, Airbus, um, you know, everybody knows them for their airplanes, but just like Boeing, they also have a defense and, and security arm. And the Airbus Defense and Security is uh, having a unit called uh, Secure Land Communication. But basically what they do, they provide uh, communications technologies for public safety operators, police, firework, uh, ambulance service, etc., but also critical utilities like transport. And so I was heading the secure land communications in the Pacific, and, and I was brought in to uh, try to create the growth in the, in the region. Uh, traditionally, uh, we've been very strong. Uh, Airbus has been very strong in, in, in China uh, and Hong Kong and a couple of other markets, but not really in the rest of the APAC. And, and we wanted to challenge that. So it was a traditional create a growth strategy, build your, your plan and start executing it, which I did uh, up to the point of execution. Uh, during the time of which COVID hit and, and changed pretty much everything. And obviously Airbus being a, a uh, by, by, by vast uh, uh, a major aircraft carrier supplier had to deal with the, with the challenges that COVID hit the airline industries and, and the focus had to go somewhere else. So, 
So that was one of the reasons uh, when COVID came that, uh, you know, it looked like the executional plan we created was not possible. And, and uh, I started to look around uh, or we started to discuss about other, other options and, you know, Singapore going back to Europe. And at that time, I, I, I took a note in the Finnish uh, newspaper saying that uh, there's a company called Business Finland looking for a China country director. And I said, hey, wait a minute, that might also be something worth considering. Uh, first, the idea was very weird. I've been all my life in the private sector, thinking about going to work for the Finnish government, uh, with all due respect to Finland, obviously. Uh, but yeah, I took a look at it and I started to think about it. I knew the... Um, Finnish ambassador to Beijing at the time, so I thought I'll have a chat with, with him and say, what do you think about this job and what do you think should I apply for that? And he highly recommended me to do so. And, and uh, I don't know, the rest is history. Okay, well, tell us a little bit more about Finland's, historically speaking, Finland's relationship with China and what are the main business and, and economic interests and relationships that they've had with China? Oh, well, our relationship dates back to, you know, more than 100 years. Actually, uh, we were one of the fir- first countries, Finland, that is, who recognized the new China when, it, when, it, when the Communist Party took over. And we've been always uh, remembered by that. So it, it's something that speaks favorably for us, obviously, today. But, but uh, also the trade dates back to, uh, you know, 70 years. Actually, today, this year, we are celebrating the first anniversary of the first uh, bilateral trade agreement between Finland and China. So, so you know, we've been doing business for long. Um, today, if you look at uh, China, we have here somewhere between 250 and 300 Finnish companies who are doing business in China. Uh, they are representing quite well, you know, the, all the major industries that you've known Finland for, you know, pa- pa- paper and pulp, the forest industry, obviously one of them, the different machinery uh, suppliers, chemical industries, maritime Etc. Etc. So, so we've got all um, uh, basically uh, companies that that uh, have been traditionally doing uh, international business already doing business in China. A few exceptions, but by large, that's the case. Um, but if you think about from you know business Finland and and, and team Finland work in terms of trade promotion today, uh, we are facing really exciting times. I, I think. Uh, simply because China is also changing their shift and focus in terms of where they're going to put their money in, in, in the future and where they see they need to invest more. And, and then you start to talk about things like, you know, green energy and energy transition. You start to talk about carbon reduction uh, methods, uh, all, all these kind of things that, that Finland is actually very, very um, strong in. So we're looking at a huge number of companies that we know have something unique to offer to China market, but are not yet there. So from you know, Business Finland uh, being a trade promotion organization, that's probably one of the biggest questions we, we are thinking about now. So um, all in all, uh, truly exciting times from, from that angle too. Are you facilitating a two-way relationship? Meaning? Meaning representing and helping Finnish companies, Finnish trade, enter into China and be successful. But is it also, you're helping potentially introduce Chinese business interests into Finland as well. Absolutely. I mean, if you really look at the the, uh, the main functions, main services we provide in China market, which is, by the way, the same we provide in any other market as, 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 as a trade promotion organization, trade promotion is a big part of it. That's the biggest part if you look at the, in the resources and investments we, we, we make in this country. 
doing exactly what you said, but we also are promoting Finland here as a destination for tourism, but also investments. Uh, and so that's also a very important part of, of the work we do. Um, and last but not least, we actually have a very long-standing uh, joint cooperation with the Ministry of Science and Technology in the area of uh, innovation, so joint innovation, which dates back to 1980s even. So, so all these areas are, are things we are doing here. Which sectors are the most exciting for you when you're talking about either Finnish uh, trade to China or China trade investment into Finland? I mean, in terms of trade, it's, it's the, you know, the things that have to do with carbon reduction and energy transition is, is the one that is really keeping us busy. So that's kind of like in the, in the face of sell, sell, sell. The other area is very similar is actually uh, health technology, digital health technologies and, and uh, elderly care type of uh, knowledge that we have in Finland. That's also extremely uh, strong in demand today. Um, but then we got emerging things coming up that we kind of like, I don't know if I could use the word market making or trying to make the market become, but then you talk about, you know, uh, moving from, you know, recycle to circular economy. So you start to talk about how to, how to do this. Uh, also, you know, applying new materials, bio-based materials, all areas where Finland has a lot of innovation, a lot of good companies, but has not really yet uh, become a main investment or, or business stream in China. It will come for sure. Uh, and then you have, of course, also the, you know, the consumer, uh, consumer market, which we are also looking at very, very keenly today. Um, we believe that the consumer uh, pattern, the consumption patterns in China are changing relatively fast. And I think we saw that during the COVID time, especially that there's a huge and increasing population of Chinese consumers who are basically appreciating exactly the same values and, and making their purchase decisions following similar values that you would see in any global Western country, sustainability, looking for something more individual, durable than, than just, you know, major brands and, and uh, health aspects of, of, of uh, you know, nutrition, for instance, food, food products, uh, cosmetics are, are very important. And that's traditionally things that Finland is, is strong as. Uh, so, so we see a great opportunities bringing Finnish consumers, consumer brands into China. They are not here in a big way, like you would say, you know, Sweden with the IKEA and stuff like that. But I think now the, the, the opportunity is coming for more of these individual uh, brands to come in. So uh, that's definitely when I think about coming to China. In terms of uh, investments to Finland, now Finland actually today is becoming very quickly a, a green energy superpower. Only over 90% of our energy in Finland is already produced from non-fossil fuels. So this will become a, a or is today already a key uh, attraction for Finland uh, to attract foreign investments. And the Chinese companies are also facing the situation where they have to seek more and more growth outside of the China market because the, grow, the market is not growing as it used to grow. So it's quite a natural development. And when they do this, they have to consider what's their you know, optimal location, moving closer to their customers, markets. And when you talk about Europe, Finland is becoming more and more attractive place to consider as, as a landing. So that obviously is, is a very important topic for us. Specifically, of course, China is uh, very strong in in area of electric vehicles and battery technology. So you could imagine that the clean tech, this type of driven, uh, or these type of areas are really uh, very topical in, in our discussions there. And that's nothing, you know, we're not saying anything uh, negative about China and where they're at on that, because Finland is so far ahead of just about everybody else in the entire world that all countries, not just China, 
could learn so much about what Finland is doing and how they've done it, either from a political point of view, legislation point of view, or just product use technology point of view as well. You're one of the best and one of the first and one of the most successful regions of the world with regards to that sector that everybody uh, can learn from, China being no different. I want to drill down a little bit more into the consumer space, as you mentioned, and maybe just ask you, what are some of the, the Finnish brands that are potentially doing well and in what sectors in the consumer space in China? Consumer brands, uh, really, we don't have major big success stories that people would recognize, but there are a few that are already becoming more and more active. Uh, Marimekko, you can actually see one of the patterns behind my shoulders. Marimekko is increasingly gaining uh, reputation in China. It has become visible in, 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 you know, in, in, uh, in, on the street level. So that's certainly one of the leading brands that we see uh, visibly here when you, when you stroll around China market. And there are other consumer brands that come from the company called like Fiskars, which is more kind of household design or, or design for work, work uh, tools, etc. So that you will see more and more. But I think the real breakthrough still awaits. Uh, and I expect that uh, for, if you look at, for instance, food segment, the food sector is still pretty much B2B. So it's basically not yet hit through. You see Fatser chocolate and it, you, know, you see small things like that. But in terms of really significant impact and becoming visible, uh, that's definitely a topic we are working on. And I expect that to happen in the next couple of years to come. Now, to give a leading indicator to our audience of the last question I'm going to ask before we wrap things up, I'm going to I'm going to ask one question in front of that and say, how famous is Timu Solani in in Finland? Could he run for prime minister? <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting one. Well, first of all, how famous it is, of course. He's extremely famous. He's, uh, is he the most famous hockey player in Finland? I think he's still the most famous hockey player. It depends a bit which generation you ask. If you ask my generation, for sure, no question. Uh, but if I ask my son, I'm not sure he, he would give you the same answer. Uh, in terms of running for the prime minister, or etc., I guess that's a, that's a good one. But I think you need to ask Temo about that. So who would be in the running then as far as famous hockey players that, uh, you know, and, and I mean, I, I do understand that in, in, in Scandinavia, it kind of depends on what little region you come from. Right. You know, even in Sweden and whatnot, it, it kind of depends on, you know, well, the Sedins, you know, they could be the most you know famous over here. But then it could be Matt Sundin from from another area. But is it is it like that in, in Finland? And, and who is also in the running for most famous hockey player in Finland? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a tough one. Oh, these most famous things, they are obviously usually easy to pick from the names that are, you know, uh, famous at, at, at the point in time where you discuss about them. Today, you see the Mikoranda and you see, you see, uh, Sebastian Aho, you see, you see Rope Hintz, you see, uh, you know, you know, you know, you see the guys who are playing in NHL and, and doing really well. Uh, so I would guess that one of these chants would emerge as, as, as if, if you do a wider question. So, yeah, I don't know. My personal, uh, personally, also, I go quite a lot back to the Koivu brothers. Both of them I did uh, are at, at their, their time something exceptional. So, look, I mean, the list is so long that you, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't think your podcast has time to go more into this. 
No. And I wish we just started a whole new podcast just talking about that. But that question that I wanted to talk to you about relates back to China. And you're a big hockey player. You play in the Beijing Hockey League and and that whole community. Just tell us about the, the hockey community in Beijing. Is it all expats? What are all the nationalities that play in there? And, you know, honestly, your, your time playing in that Beijing International Ice Hockey League. That's true, but I probably have to set the record straight for it. So big, big problem is I'm big at heart, but not that much in skills. But been enjoying all the seven years I'm playing in the league. It's it's fantastic. It's simply one of the reasons that keeps us in Beijing. At least my wife uh, is quite firm about that. That that's the reason I, I refuse to leave. And it is actually because uh, work-life balance. It's it's a big part of of that, and and the community is is, is awesome. I, I don't know. Uh, uh, can you find any comparison anywhere in the world? It's a combination of, of several uh, nationalities. Uh, there are Chinese players. Uh, there are obviously a few Finnish players. Canadians uh, are the most surprise, surprise. Uh, <laughs> and look, it's been it's it's run very professionally uh, with the resources available and the time available. Uh, my brother came here a couple of years ago and and uh, before the COVID actually and and joined uh, joined the drafting uh, drafting session uh, draft, drafting party. And he was totally uh, blown away. I said he couldn't imagine that it's uh, this level of, of uh, activity and, and you know the you know the jerseys and the caps and and and, and the team selections and, and all that. So it's uh, it's um, yeah, it's undescribable. Todd, you need to experience before you can really understand what it's about. It's it's great. Is it your favorite expat community in Beijing? Oh, sure, by far. I also use hockey as the main component of my work life sanity zen balance that that I need with with everything else going on in my life with with the kids and everything else as well and I usually sneak away and take a 2 hour lunch 3 times a week just to to go play hockey uh, right. over here but we are blessed with you know many many sheets of ice per mm. capita uh, I live in a town of 50,000 people and we I think we have five rinks so <laughs> that's just Canada uh, yeah. we live in the, uh, through hockey over here but so I appreciate you taking that on and it's great to talk to a, a fellow hockey player and a fellow expat and uh, I just really want to thank you for coming on the show today it was uh, it was a pleasure to have you it's good to be here though thanks for a good discussion all right, everybody. That's Marco T.S. Maki. Thank you very much. He's the China Country Director for Business Finland. Thank you for coming on the show. And for all of you, quick reminder, if you're listening to us on the audio, on the podcast, don't forget we have the YouTube channel going where you can see us live and, and in color video. Go to the WPIC YouTube channel and you'll find us there. And for those of you watching us on YouTube, we have the podcast on all your podcast platforms that you might listen to. But uh, for me and everybody at the negotiation and for Marco as well, thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.